0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. We have a great say, say Heritage. Sometimes we start late, but we always end on time. So I'm, uh, I'm Jim Carrefour, I oversee all the foreign defense and security policy here at Heritage. And it is my privilege to welcome Dr. A. Wes Mitchell, um, who, is Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs. Um, he is responsible for diplomatic relations with 50 countries in Europe and Eurasia and with NATO the EU, and the OSCE. Prior, prior to joining the State Department, Dr. Mitchell spent 12 years at the Center for European Policy Analysis, a think tank dedicated to the study of Central Europe. He was a co-founder of CEPa and served as the president and chief executive officer from 2009 to 2017 and the director of research from 2006 to 2009 and played an instrumental role in CEPa's growth and becoming a leaning think tank with offices in Washington, D.C., and Warsaw Poland, and I must say, one of the one of the great partner institutions that we love to work with um, here in Washington D.C. Um, he is the author of numerous articles and reports on the transatlantic relations and international security. His work his work has been translated into ten languages and appeared in major newspapers, including the Washington Post and the National Interests. And he is the co-author of three books on geopolitics. So, um, child number two was the Unquiet Frontier: A Vulnerable Vulnerable Allies, Rising Rivals, and the Crisis of American Power, which I understand has just been translated into Romanian, so congratulations. And his third book, which was just recently published on the grand strategy of the Habsburg Empire, he holds a PhD in political science um, from the Friar University in Berlin, an MA in European Studies from Georgetown University, so he's a Hoya, so that pretty much says it all right there. Um, and... Uh, uh, and a BA in history from Texas Tech University, so he's a Hoya and a Texan. So, uh, which I, re- I think are really the only two attributes anybody needs to be successful in this world. So, with that, please join me in welcoming Dr. Mitchell.
0: Good morning, everyone. It's really great to see a lot of friends in the audience, and I appreciate you all being here today. I'd like to thank Heritage Foundation for inviting me to speak. Uh, I have followed Heritage's research for many years and appreciate the work that you do uh, bringing original ideas to the policy debate here in Washington. I especially want to acknowledge uh, James Carafano and Luke Coffey, uh, now Gardner, uh, rest of the team here dealing with Europe and Russia. Uh, keep up the good work. A hundred years ago this month, uh, American soldiers were fresh off the boat in France, uh, beginning to engage in their first battles of World War I. Uh, They had just won their first victory at the French village of Contagny, and were in the opening phases of the Battle of uh, Belleau Wood, where US Marines stopped a German offensive and saved Paris. In the decades that followed, America would fight again to save Europe, uh, three world wars, two hot and one cold, uh, we helped uh, rally the democratic west to prevent brutal opponents from dominating Europe and the western rimlands of Eurasia. After World War II, our grandparents' generation uh, laid the foundation for future western security and prosperity uh, through Atlantic cooperation. Unlike in 1919, uh, in 1945 we did not leave Europe. We created permanent bases for U.S. troops. We formed the Marshall Plan. We created NATO and supported the establishment of the European Union. The end of communism in 1989 brought vindication of everything we had fought for in the 20th century, representative democracy, free markets, rule of law, the Western way of life, in short, the cause of freedom. Next year, we will mark three decades since the fall of the Berlin Wall, It will be a time to celebrate and remind ourselves and our allies what we were striving for and how far we have come. The world that our grandparents and parents built is a place where we enjoy a degree of freedom and prosperity um, uh, that would have been unimaginable to past generations. Together with our allies, the United States ushered in one of the longest periods without great power war in recorded history. But as we contemplate the past, we should also look to the future. Today, the United States and Europe face challenges that few of us would have thought possible from the vantage point of 1989. In his speech in Warsaw last summer, President Trump stated up front what the goal of this administration and its foreign policy will be in Europe, to preserve the West. As he said then, there is nothing like this community of nations. The world has never known anything like it. We must have the desire and courage to preserve it in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it. The starting point of the national security strategy and national defense strategy is that we are heading into an era of sustained big power competition for which the West, collectively, is underprepared. Adapting ourselves for this new era is the central task of U.S. foreign policy today. That task begins at home by making America more prosperous and secure. Uh, The President's focus is on rebuilding our defenses by shoring up our depleted armed forces and recapitalizing our nuclear deterrent, on rebuilding our economy by making American businesses more competitive, stimulating investment, restoring manufacturing, and fighting to give American companies a fair playing field in international markets. Since January of last year, nearly 3 million American jobs have been created. The unemployment rate has dropped to its lowest numbers in nearly two decades, and job openings have reached 6.6 million, the highest level ever recorded. A strong America is good for Americans, but it is also good for our allies and for the world. American strength is the foundation upon which the world as we know it rests. If that foundation is vulnerable, all that we believe in, all that we ground our strength upon, democracy, markets, deterrence, all of that is vulnerable as well. Preserving the West cannot happen without Europe. America and Europe together are the West and the heart of the free world. Europe is the central pillar of our international alliance system and, by far, our largest economic relationship with more than $5.5 trillion in annual commerce. Germany today hosts 35,000 U.S. troops, Italy 12,000, the U.K. maintains a special relationship with the United States, and France is our oldest ally. There is no major foreign policy challenge in which America and Europe can hope to succeed without each other. A strong and free Europe is of vital importance to the United States. Our Europe strategy begins by acknowledging that Europe is once again a theater of serious strategic competition and needs to be treated as such in how we think about our role and mobilize our allies. After 1989, Europe became, in many people's minds, a post-geopolitical, post-historical place. History was over, we had defeated the Soviet Union, and Western institutions were expanding. After the 9-11 attacks, we shifted the bulk of America's foreign policy focus and resources to counterterrorism and the Middle East. After 2009, we pivoted to Asia, withdrew the last U.S. tanks from Europe, and prepared for a Pacific century. Fast forward to today. Coming into 2017, this administration inherited a failed Russia reset, a conflict in Ukraine that had already cost 10,000 lives, a failed red line in Syria, the largest migration wave in recent European history, an EU that was navigating the first formal exit of a member state in its history, and an insolvent Iran agreement that had helped enable a scale of Iranian expansion from the Persian Gulf to the borders of Israel not seen since antiquity. Today, Europe is indisputably a place of serious geopolitical competition. The starting point of the Europe strategy is to say, we have to take this reality seriously. That means taking geopolitical competition seriously. America has to take it seriously, and Europe has to take it seriously. First, we have to anchor the Western alliance. This is both a material and a political undertaking. The material part starts with uh, physical defense. Strong defense is cost effective. The stronger we are today, the less likely assertive rivals are to choose the path of war tomorrow. America has set the example in accepting our share of the responsibilities for American security by being crystal clear on our commitment to NATO and Article 5, reaffirming NATO as the bedrock of Western defense, and putting real resources into the defense of Europe. Since January 2017, we have requested more than $11 billion in new funds for the European Deterrence Initiative. In all of these areas, America is accepting and honoring its responsibilities to Europe. But our efforts are incomplete and can even be counterproductive if they are not accompanied by a willingness on the part of European allies to defend their own continent. Europeans cannot expect Americans to care more about their security than they do. We need allies to fulfill their pledges made at Wales and reiterated at the Brussels leaders meeting to commit to submit plans for spending 2% of GDP on defense and 20% of budgets on major equipment by 2024. We need our allies to get NATO more squarely into the counterterrorism business and increase CT cooperation between NATO and the EU to accept a greater burden for operations in Afghanistan, Iraq, Western Balkans and North Africa keep the European Union's pledge to strengthen military mobility. We are making progress. Since January of last year, every member of NATO, save one, has increased defense spending. I will not say which one. Uh, In that time, the number of allies that will spend 2% on defense by 2024 has tripled from 5 to 16. The number allocating at least 20% to major equipment has almost doubled from 14 to 24. And the alliance as a whole has increased defense spending by 5.1 percent, or $14.4 billion, the largest commitment to defense in a generation. In the past year, 26 allies have increased troop contributions to NATO missions, and we have secured $30 billion for the stabilization of Iraq and nearly $6 billion for Afghanistan. But taking competition seriously is not just about burden sharing. It's also about taking responsibility for problems that, if not addressed, will put us all, Europe and America, at a major disadvantage down the road. One of those is Iran. This is a country whose leaders shout death to America and death to Israel. We should take those statements seriously. Continuing to do business with an Iran that is building ballistic missiles is not an option. As Secretary Pompeo said recently at at a heritage podium, no more cost-free expansion. Another example is Nord Stream 2. This pipeline will make the eastern flank of NATO more vulnerable to Russian pressure reduce Ukraine's security as a transit nation and render it more susceptible to Russian aggression, and make Europe more dependent on Russian monopolies. Many European states, as well as the European Union, share our concern and are working with us to stop this project. Taking strong U.S. positions on issues like Iran and Nord Stream 2 causes disagreements with some of our allies. But the long-term costs of neglecting these things outweigh whatever short-term benefits we get from the appearance of political unity today. In taking strong positions, we are not targeting our allies. We are countering those like Russia, Iran, and China that are putting our collective security at risk. We urge our allies to take these and other threats to Western security more seriously than they have in the past, and we are ready to work together to find a common way forward. Preserving the Western alliance is not just a material undertaking. As Churchill said, arms, instrumentalities are not sufficient. We must add to them the power of ideas. That begins with being clear about who we are. We are not being threatened as individual polities, but as a political civilization, the West. What is the West? It's a realm of of ordered liberty, guarded by strong states, bound together in leagues and alliances. The West is separation of powers to protect the liberty of individuals and communities, and alliances to protect the nations that preserve those liberties. Those are liberties we hold dear. Nowhere are they more clearly spelled out than in the Washington Treaty, the founding document of NATO, which states in its preamble, the parties of the treaty are determined to safeguard the freedom, common heritage, and civilization of their peoples founded on the principles of democracy, individual liberty, and rule of law. The United States stands for the cause of freedom. It's who we are. America was founded on a constitutional creed that advances liberty, not only for its intrinsic merits, but as something that is intimately tied up in our security as a nation. Today, that cause is being threatened in a way we never could have foreseen after the end of communism in 1989. Russia and China represent a coherent model, political stability founded on authoritarianism and brute force harnessed to certain aspects of market competition, that threatens the basic principles of our functioning. In different ways, Russia and China want to break the West. Moscow wants to splinter and shatter it, Beijing to supplant it. To counter that, we have to be clear that we stand for strong democracy as the foundation of our security and prosperity. We must view the West as a community of democratic nations united by history, culture, and shared sacrifice. Some of its members are old democracies, some are not. Some are members of the EU or NATO, some are not. Some are weak, some are strong, some are geographically insulated, some are exposed. Ukraine and Georgia are part of the West, both by virtue of history and the choices of their people. Britain will still be very much at the heart of the West after Brexit. The point is that there has to be a concept that binds us that is not just an institution. Institutions are means and not an end. It is this broader sense of community that has to be mobilized and strengthened for the era of geopolitical competition. One place where strategic competition is intensifying dramatically is Europe's eastern frontier. The space from the Caucasus through the Balkans and up uh, through the Danubian Basin is a region of renewed geopolitical focus for Russia and a new playground for China. Our priority has been, first and foremost, to check Russian aggression. In In recent years, Moscow has forcefully redrawn borders in Eastern Europe. It has intimidated and attacked neighbors, launched disinformation and cyber campaigns against the West, and engaged in military buildups on its western frontiers. As Secretary Pompeo said recently, Russia's aggressive behavior was enabled by years of soft policy toward that aggression. That is now over. We seek better relations with Moscow, but will not pay for these by sacrificing our principles or our friends. We are clear-eyed about the challenges we face, and will raise the cost of Russian aggression until President Putin chooses a different path. Since January 2017, we have brought sanctions against 205 Russian individuals and entities. In support of our close ally, the UK, we rallied allies to conduct the largest expulsion of Russian diplomats and intelligence officers since the Cold War. Together with U.S. European Command, the State Department is leading the U.S. government in systematically strengthening our tools to counter Russian cyber threats, active measures, and disinformation. Second, in parallel, we are building up the means of self-defense for those states most directly threatened by Russia militarily, Ukraine and Georgia. We have lifted the previous administration's restrictions on lethal aid and helped those states acquire much-needed defensive weapons. We have also worked to keep Ukraine on the path of reform, including most recently, by working to ensure an anti-corruption court that meets IMF standards. And we are working to strengthen U.S. political, military, and economic engagement with Georgia. Third, we are working with allies to build better long-term bulwarks to Chinese and Russian influence. Across the eastern frontier, that means strengthening frontline states' political systems, diversifying their energy grids, improving the resilience and readiness of their militaries, and encouraging their efforts at regional coordination. In north-central Europe, we are working with Poland and the Baltic states to build a stronger military deterrent. In central Europe, we are strengthening efforts to combat corruption, counter Russian disinformation, and ensure a vibrant civil society. In the Balkans, we are increasing aid against Russian influence and coordinating closely with the EU to bring greater stability. As I speak, our team is working in the field with the EU and key European partners on Serbia-Kosovo, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and the Greece-Macedonia name issue. In the Balkans, as elsewhere in the world, the scale and depth of U.S.-European cooperation demonstrates the ways in which the transatlantic relationship helps uh, helps us address very real common problems. Throughout this whole region, from the Baltic to the Black Sea, we are making steady headway in supporting diversified energy infrastructure, through projects like Kirk Island and the Brua Pipeline to ensure our friends have options other than Russian gas. And fourth, we are working to engage with vulnerable states on the eastern frontier of NATO and the EU that face growing pressure from Russia and enticements from China. As outlined in the National Security Strategy, our main task here is to compete for positive influence. Unlike in the past, countries on the frontier have options, There's Russian pressure but also Chinese money. China's so-called 16-plus-1 and Belt Road initiatives are geopolitical projects aimed at cultivating influence and weakening Western solidarity. We have to strengthen our ties with and provide viable alternatives to vulnerable states to keep them moored in the West or expect to lose them. Criticism alone is not a strategy. Criticism bereft of engagement is a recipe for estrangement. Engagement is not just diplomatic, it also it is also about winning hearts and minds of publics for whom the memory of 1989 and NATO enlargement is increasingly distant. Engagement does not mean indifference to our own principles of liberty. We will always be clear about what we stand for and the values we share, while using the tools of diplomacy to close the gaps within the West that Russia and China so eagerly exploit. Finally, we have to stabilize Europe's southern frontier the Mediterranean basin, and its littorals. We have been slower, uh, I think, to view the South through a strategic lens, in part because uh, the problems in Europe's East are more easily recognizable to us as being strategic in nature, being mainly military and familiar as a Cold War problem set, and in part because the main challenges in the South are things we associate mainly with domestic politics. Counterterrorism for Europe has until recently largely been seen as a policing matter, and irregular migration has been a primarily political and humanitarian concern. But as recent events have shown, uh, developments to Europe's south can also dramatically affect the strategic stability of Europe. The magnitude of recent migration flows sent ripples of political instability into the very heart of Europe. Brexit, German elections, the bottleneck of migrants and foreign terrorist fighters in the Balkans, the growth of populism, none of these can be fully understood without taking into account the migration crisis. The CT challenge is not simply a policing problem. ISIS and its successor groups have a kind of strategic lift uh, capacity. They can hit large cities, including in the United States, uh, the U.S. homeland, from European airports. The spread of Iranian influence from the Levant and Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf will profoundly shape Western security over the next several years and Europe is likely to feel its effects more directly before the United States does. Russia, too, is active in the Mediterranean, not only with its traditional naval presence, but as a life support for the Assad regime that has prolonged the migration challenge from Syria and enabled growing Iranian influence in the region. For all of these reasons, we have to take Europe's uh, southern frontier more seriously. We have worked to rally Europe to increase contributions in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, turn uh, NATO's attention more fully to a southern vector, which will be a major focus of the upcoming NATO summit, and increase allied efforts at strengthening borders and coordinating our dollars and euros for stability in North Africa and the Middle East. On migration, we are working to be a catalyst to homegrown efforts of frontier states, most directly impacted by the problem, and who have done the most in developing local solutions. We are working with Mediterranean nations like Italy to to build a strategic initiative on migration that encompasses all of the dimensions of this challenge, from onshore North Africa and Middle East stability and better coordination of NATO, EU, and member state aid to maritime security and border security. And finally, we have to buttress the eastern Mediterranean. This is a major undertaking in its own right. This is an emerging maritime frontier, and we face full-on competition from the Russians. We are working determinedly to stabilize the relationship with Turkey and keep it on a Western strategic track. A permanent breach in this relationship would do multi-generational damage to US national security. On a long-term basis, Turk is, Turkey is the only country in the region with the throw weight to counterbalance Iran. It is a NATO ally with legitimate security concerns, and many, including many that we share that we must help it address. Turkey is a framework nation in the Resolute Support Mission critical to European energy security and dealing with the migration challenge, and a partner in counterterrorism. At the same time, we cannot be silent when Turkey's leaders curb democratic freedoms and rule of law, harangue Israel, and wield rhetoric or pursue policies that unnerve Ankara's neighbors and our close friends and allies. We have sought to stabilize the relationship with concrete near-term objectives, pressing for the release of detained Americans and embassy staff, averting the purchase of a Russian S-400, system and constructing a modus vivendi to avoid a collision of our forces in northern Syria. In parallel, we are working to put the pieces in place for a stronger long-term US strategic presence in the eastern Mediterranean. We are cultivating Greece as an anchor of stability. Uh, in the eastern Med and western Balkans, we're working with Cyprus as a vulnerable state that needs a greater western needs greater western attention while continuing the process towards a bizonal bicommunal federation and developing the energy of the eastern Mediterranean as a major plank of European energy diversification as Europe's traditional northern fields wind down. In all of these areas, anchoring the Western alliance, securing the eastern frontier, stabilizing the south, I see our task as one of strategic renovation, doing the hard work of shoring up and strengthening the West now so that we don't have to do so later on terms that are less favorable. We are playing catch up after years of not seeing Europe as a strategic theater. This is not a task that we can accomplish alone. Only through cooperation with individual allies, with NATO, with the European Union, can we succeed. Along the way, we will not agree on everything, but it is not our disagreements that will define us. The bonds that bind us are far stronger than anything that divides us. The transatlantic relationship has known its fair share of disagreements, from Roosevelt and Churchill to Kennedy and Adenauer, Suez, Vietnam, Pershing missiles, Iraq, Quantitative easing, disputes over poultry and chlorine. But as in any family, we work out our disagreements in ways that leave us stronger. The United States is committed to working with Europe to narrow the gaps between us and arrive at a unified position against common challenges. At the same time, we keep up our work together on CT, Syria, Ukraine, Russia sanctions, DPRK, Venezuela, Western Balkans, and so many other areas. We are committed to accepting and honoring our responsibilities. In common cause, we all have our parts. We must accept ours, and Europe must accept its own. The days are over when the West could, in Lord Salisbury's Salisbury's famous phrase, float lazily downstream, occasionally putting out a diplomatic boat hook to avoid collisions. We must view the defense of the democratic West not as something that will succeed automatically because of the end of history or the arc of history, but is something that requires our conscious, dedicated effort and the sacrifice of our societies to ensure. The work in front of us is not easy or painless, but it is worth every ounce of creativity and vigor we put into it. There is nothing more precious to us as societies, more valuable to our long-term economic prosperity, or more necessary for our mutual defense than the bonds of history, culture, commerce, and security that exist between the United States and the countries of Europe. Let us work together to preserve that. Thank you.
1: So I understand we have a time for a few questions, and so I've collected up some for you. And uh, so I have to confess, that the first one is is uh, a bit parochial. So. Um, for many years, Heritage has worked on the visa waiver program. That's that's the program that allows um, reciprocity between the United States and, and dozens of other countries for visa-free for travel for um, personnel and, and business. And we did uh, some reforms uh, in the mid-2000s. We brought in a number of countries, including um, former Wasaw PAC members, many of which are now from members of NATO. And, and then there were some changes to the law that kind of put brought that process uh, to a stop, and so left out of those are some some key American partners, in, including countries like uh, Poland uh, Croatia, and romania and and I know to be fair that VWp is the, that that's an interagency pro- process, but it's led by the Department of Homeland security which has which has lead on that but it is um, a significant uh, public policy i mean a public diplomacy issue. Um, it, it, uh it, it's really not a question of security since countries that join the visa waiver program actually provide security guarantees that are actually superior to countries where you have to go get a visa. So it's actually a net security benefit to the United States. So um, – and I know this is an issue that's been talked about. President Obama talked about bringing Poland to the visa waiver program. So I, I'd be interested if you could share kind of what the state of play is and and where where the, the new State Department comes down in the expanding participation of visa waiver.
0: Well, thanks for uh, asking that question. Um, I appreciate the work that Heritage has done on highlighting the importance of the Visa Waiver Program, but also engaging uh, a lot of really critical allies that have been standing in in line for a while to get into that program. I've worked with some of those countries in the past, and I know how central of an issue this is, particularly on on Capitol Hill. I I will just say Visa Waiver Program is a very powerful tool. Um, 38 countries are part of this program. Uh, You know, being an effective tool requires us to balance Ease of travel uh, with the necessity of security. Um, the the requirements for this program are static. They are legislated. Uh, I can tell you that we work very closely with allies, including some of the countries that you've mentioned, uh, at a very, very technical level on an ongoing basis uh, to get them where they need to be and to get them over the threshold. Uh, I can tell you that that's a commitment. It's something that we take seriously, both with regard to the security aspects of Visa Waiver Program and with regard to um, engaging diplomatically with allies in that process. We continue at it. Uh, I think we've made some progress
1: in recent days, uh, and it'll continue to be a priority. Um, Thanks. So I actually think we heard uh, several uh, things in this speech in terms of U.S.-European policy that we, we haven't heard before, and I'd like to... To get to some of those, Hannah, and I have some questions on that. But before we do that, um, I think it's worth acknowledging that there are frictions in the U.S.-European relationships, uh, and, and two of them are quite big. So there's been a lot of discussion about JPCOA and Iran deal and everything, and I think we can put that to the side. But the other issue which has really been an irritant in the transatlantic relationship is um, U.S. trade policy and the implementations of parents and the back and forth between U.S. and Europe. Um, so I, I kind of like your assessment on that, uh, kind of an explanation of where the U.S. is going in what it thinks it's doing in trade policy, but also how much do you think that this is going to affect the transatlantic relationship and the long list of things that you've laid out that we need to do together. I mean, do you have concerns that the friction is going to slow, slow that process of building the partnership between U.S. and Europeans, particularly when we look and we see kind of all this stuff on Twitter and, and the the comments back and forth that we hear today?
0: Look, uh, it's an important question, and I know that it's attracted a lot of attention uh, lately. Let me start by saying the transatlantic relationship is built on strong trade. Um, This is certainly not the first uh, disagreement that the United States and Europe have had over the decades on on fundamental issues of trade. Um, Right now, this is about a $5.5 trillion uh, economic relationship on an annual basis. Um, it's a very, it's a very healthy economic relationship, but the structural imbalances are real, and they need to be dealt with. Our goal has been uh, to promote fair and reciprocal trade. Uh, Secretary Ross has been clear that he is open to an alternative means to address 232. Um, we are committed to finding a common way forward to address what really is uh, the real problem, and that is overcapacity um uh, that's uh, caused by the People's Republic of China. That's a shared uh, challenge both for the United States and for Europe. Uh, we're committed to finding a joint way forward. Uh, and I think in the meantime, the key is while we're working through this uh, to not let the issue of tariffs define the relationship. It's an important issue. As I said, I think the structural balances need to be addressed. Um, we're committed to finding a common place, and I think we will get there.
1: Thanks. So if I could just follow up on that for, um, just a second, because this is, to be fair, it's a, it's a difficult debate to follow. So if you ask, you know, who has more tariffs, is us or them, right? So, you know, the administration would say, well, actually, if you look at tariff rates, that European rates are slightly higher. And the Europeans say, well, yeah, but some American tariffs are so high that there's no trade there. And so if you look at the weighted tariff rates, it looks slightly different. So, um, it, and and I think at the end of the day, free traders on both sides of the Atlantic say, well, the real secret sauce here, the real ma- magic is when we get to a place where the United States and Europe are working to reduce both the tariff and non-tariff barriers to actually creating a more free trade transatlantic community. And so let me ask you, so what role will, will you play in that? And what role will the State Department play in that in trying to move... The dialogue beyond, you know, simply the what's in the news now on the tariffs, um, you know, beyond, you know, that uh, uh, TTIP is is gone, and and so what, what's next? I mean, how are, how is the State Department going to move, help move this this discussion, this transition? Well,
0: I think it, it, obviously this is primarily a USTR and Commerce uh, competency. Uh, on two thirty two, um, we have had. Uh, for a very long time, uh, di- dialogue now, uh, with our European allies about the problem of overcapacity. Uh, and that's, this is overwhelmingly a problem that originates in China. Um, I think this is a problem that has gotten steadily worse with time. It's one that affects both Europe and the United States. Um, it's also, uh, a problem that's made much more complex, uh, by the challenge of transshipments and uh, you know, uh, identifying the source of uh, the problem, and often it goes through Europe as well. Um, our approach has been to engage with the Europeans on uh, the, the scope of the challenge, uh, work through a process uh, where we could try to get to a common place. That's obviously an ongoing process. I think uh, Secretary Ross has been clear uh, recently that we're very open to finding alternative means to address 232. Uh, but again, USTR and commerce are the primary uh, primary um, uh, owners of this process and state is primarily in a supporting role.
1: Uh, so uh, among the list of questions were, you know, on some of the things that we – I don't think we've heard before when we've when we've heard the discussion of, of what this administration's policies are going to be towards Europe. So we saw a lot really in the first year of the administration um, really on, on reassuring NATO, commitment to Article 5, um, support for the NATO reassurance programs, um, really an expansion of U.S., uh, exercises in the theater, a reaffirmation of, of what you mentioned of, of, uh, bucking Russian aggression, um, renewed commitments and support to Georgia and, uh, Ukraine. But, uh, today I think we heard some things that were new. Um, this broader conceptualization of, the preservation of the West and what we mean by the West, you know, what are the, what is a group of community of nations um, that we're including this uh, the focus on really of the NATO frontier and uh, in particular kind of a discussion of two areas of focus and attention and energy from the the state the administration that we haven't heard about before. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion and focus in the last few years on the Northern flank, you know, particularly on, on, uh, and the baltic nations in lithuania, latvia and estonia our work with the the nordic partners and and in that part of the nato front um there's always been a lot of discussion about obviously the role of of poland and czech republic and hungary and kind of the center but what you kind of highlighted today is uh, really something we haven't really heard much of which is this this notion of looking at the southern flank in particular um emphasis on uh, the balkans and uh, the western balkans and cooperation with uh, um, U.S. American cooperation with the European Union um, and the Mediterranean. And then, of course, uh, you know, they, they are including the Black Sea. And obviously, pivotal to any of those discussions is the role of Turkey, whose geopolitics kind of put it in the center of all those issues. And this kind of uh, the tensions that have evolved between Turkey and Europe, Turkey and the U.S., uh, and so I, I was wondering if maybe you could just speak for a few more minutes and unpack this notion of mm-hmm. stabilizing this relationship to ter- Turkey, um, really discussing why it's important, why the administration really, really feels it's the right option, and, and some of the specific steps that uh, the U.S. plans on, on taking. Let me start with the first
0: part of your question on sort of the strategic focus of the administration. The conceptual framework uh, has been in place for some time, and I would uh, refer all of you not only to the President's Warsaw speech, but to the National Security Strategy and the National Defense Strategy. If you haven't read those two documents and you have the time, I would encourage you to do so. The National Security Strategy in particular is not like the National Security Strategies of pretty much any administration since the end of the Cold War, which have been uh, mainly public communicating tools. It's a a very well-developed, comprehensive security framework, uh, strategic framework, uh, similarly, the national defense uh, strategy, and both of these were uh, developed in conjunction with one another. Our Europe strategy uh, is linked to and grew out of the national security strategy framework. Uh, also uh, speeches and comments by Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Mattis, others in the administration. But I do think um, we can do a better job, certainly at my level, of uh, getting out and engaging on the fundamental question of what is the overarching approach and what is the, the strategic approach. Uh, there's a lot of work that we do on a daily basis with individual European countries, certainly at the uh, level of NATO. Secretary Pompeo was just at the ministerial. We're preparing for the summit. And with the European Union, that just as in any administration doesn't get a lot of attention because there are other things that crowd out um, the bandwidth. Uh, But that's very much the focus. And uh, on the question of Turkey uh, specifically, uh, this is uh, obviously a complicated relationship for the United States. Uh, this is a 50-year-old, uh, NATO ally. Turkey is a crucial partner for the United States in the, uh, defeat ISIS campaign, counterterrorism, um, our base at Incerlik, uh, intel sharing, um, the Geneva process. And, uh, for that reason, uh, we have a very well-developed, uh, security, uh, political and military, uh, relationship. Turkey has legitimate security concerns. Um, we share some of those concerns, and our approach has been to work together with our Turkish allies to address those concerns. Uh, that was a big part of the focus with Foreign Minister Trevor Schole's meeting yesterday with Secretary Pompeo. Uh, in parallel, uh, we continue to work to address some of the current concerns that we have, and at the top of the list is uh, the uh, detention and conviction of American c- uh, citizens in Turkey, Pastor Brunson, um, uh NASA scientist uh, Sir Khan Golgay, um, uh, several of our locally employed staff who have been unjustly detained, and we can't be quiet about those issues. They're, they're all things that um, have gotten worse in the period since the attempted coup and the uh, state of emergency. Uh, and uh, while we're working on those, there's a there's also the matter of S-400. Um, and if Turkey moves forward with the purchase of S-400, we've been very clear um, as under the auspices of, of the CATSA legislation, what the U.S. response will be. So it's a, a balancing act. We have to balance the need to engage with Turkey as a critical ally, uh, with the need to address our concerns about American citizens, but human rights and democracy more broadly. But in all of that, I think the goal has to be on keeping Turkey pointed towards a Western future, both politically and strategically. And all you have to do is look at a map to see why why that is so crucial. Uh, from a geostrategic uh, standpoint, but also from the standpoint of Turkey's people, uh, the people of Turkey. Um, so th- those are two very important aspects of the relationship that we continue to balance. Um,
1: thanks. So there's a, a couple of more specific issues on the U.S. Turkish relationship, if, if we could just mm-hmm. delve into those. And one is, I don't know if you want to, if you can comment on more, but among, uh, among the sensitive, uh, bilateral security issues, one was the S 400. You addressed that. Thanks. Um, the other one is is people raising concern about the sale of the uh, USF-35. So is, the, is there a, a, a policy on that, or, or are there any changes in that policy?
0: So um, we have been clear to the Turkish uh, officials in all of our engagements with them that if they decide to move forward with an S-400 purchase, there will be consequences. One of those consequences is spelled out pretty clearly in Section 231 of the CAATSA legislation and I don't need to elaborate on that. Our position continues to be we will abide by the law. Um, the matter of F-35, Turkey is a member in good standing of the coalition of countries who are involved in the F-35 project. Um, Congress has taken up that matter right now. Uh, I don't think I'm saying anything new uh, when I say here that, uh, from a Turkish perspective, they should expect that if they move forward with a sophisticated Russian uh, weapons platform, uh, they can expect to see it have a ripple effect or their participation in uh, U.S. military industrial projects, and I think that includes F thirty uh, five.
1: The other issue that that you raised that I was going to ask you to unpack just a bit more was, you know, something that you have not heard uh, U.S. diplomats a word very often is Cyprus. Um, so you did mention that part of the U.S. strategy is not only stabilizing the relationship with. Uh, Turkey but also uh strengthening the bilateral relationship with Greece which um is is important if if for no other reasons the naming issues of Macedonia which are important because that is a key issue in the potential for Macedonia's ascension to NATO which is becomes a key issue in terms of those of us who are interested in further NATO expansion and for Georgia that that the, the that NATO makes a clear demonstration that the door is still open and 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 that there is a, a path forward, uh, for Georgia. So when anytime you talk about building stronger relations with Turkey and Greece and you say Cyprus all in the same sentence, people get a little nervous. So I, I was wondering if you could unpack for why, why the United States is thinking about uh, getting more engaged in Cyprus, how it plans to manage that relationship between Greece and Turkey and, and how you, this will be, or could be constructive in terms of building that stronger southern flank, which you say is so, so critical for, the, um, for rounding out the defense of the NATO frontier?
0: So thanks for the question. Um, I see the eastern Mediterranean as a, an ex- a southern extension of a lot of the problems that we're dealing with across the entire eastern frontier of Europe. Um, there's Russian military pressure, subversion, um, money. There's Chinese presence increasingly in this region. There's a lot at stake for European energy security. Um, one aspect of this is building on pre-existing foundation of very strong CT cooperation with Cyprus. Um, with Greece, we have uh, at the tail end of the previous administration, we already had the start of a closer U.S.-Greece uh, relationship that we've now built on. Um, I think what we have to do on Cyprus specifically Uh, and I was just there recently uh, meeting with leaders on both sides of the island, uh, is remain engaged in the process towards a bi-zonal, bi-communal federation. That that remains a priority. We're very actively involved there, and and I will be going back there this fall. But in parallel, I do think we have to take the region and developments in that region more seriously as a strategic area in the same way that we have to be more serious about that um, undertaking across the eastern frontier. Um, We've been clear in our messaging with Turkish officials that harassment of drilling vessels in the Cyprus EEZ is not something uh, that we can, uh, that we will uh, uh, allow to go unnoticed or uh, not speak up about. Um, We've also uh, worked at building on the strong uh, political relationship with Cyprus, particularly in CT and security realms. There's a lot that we're doing, uh, for example, uh, on Russian disinformation, um, the challenge of Uh, Russian money on Cyprus is a very well known issue. So it's a, it's an area that needs to be cultivated. Uh, and we've made a lot of progress lately in doing that.
1: So if, if I could put you on the spot, I, for just one more question, I think this is one you can handle. So, um, so among the issues that you mentioned of kind of new focus for U.S. energy is the, the Western Balkans. And, uh, I, and, and I, I, I think I see where you're going, with kind of these piece parts fitting together. So, um, you did, for example, mention U.S. opposition to Nord Stream 2, which is not new. I mean, we've heard that from the President. We've heard that from Secretary Tillerson. We've heard that from Secretary Pompeo. And, and the reason, we understand the reason for U.S. opposition to that is it is, um, it, it is detrimental to this notion of greater European energy independence and your, Euro- and energy security. Um, particularly in developing the North-South corridor, which kind of co- coincides with the frontier of NATO, we've heard the president and the secretary before talk about the three C's initiative and energy and uh, uh, infrastructure investments, which which again are not just reinforcing the economic growth and activity in in the frontier and energy independence, but again they align with the security frontier of NATO. And all that stuff dangles at the end there in Southern Europe and. One of the key pieces of that is the Western Balkans, and it is the part of the frontier that's received the least amount of attention in recent years. It is the part of the frontier that people demonstrate the most concerns about, that uh, concerns over Russian uh, destabilizing potential activities, we get the most concerns about. So it is kind of heartening to hear the United States and European Union working together, focusing on stability in the Western Balkans. So. As a last question, maybe you could just unpack for us a little bit about what the U.S. thinking is are kind of the next steps in in bringing not just stability from a security standpoint, but economic development, uh, better governance, civil society to that part of Europe. Sure.
0: So first, let me say a word about Nord Stream 2. Since you mentioned it, I can't resist the opportunity to make a comment there. Um, I think the United States is aligned with the European Union and many, if not most, of its member states in opposition to this project. That it's a standing U.S. policy. It predates this administration. Um, it, it's also, uh, I, I think, important to be clear, this is not a project that increases European or Western security or energy security. Um, over the years, we have spent a lot of political effort and a lot of tax- taxpayer dollars promoting European energy diversification. Um, we've worked at that for years in Central and Eastern Europe, um, promoting pipelines, alternative sources of energy, alternative routes of energy, um, with the central objective being to lessen Europe's overall pattern of dependency on uh, Russian energy supply. Nord Stream 2 is a project that does not um, contribute to, the, to, a, to a solution on uh, European energy diversification. It makes Europe more dependent. Uh, I welcome the comments recently by Chancellor Merkel uh, the clarity that this is not an entirely commercial project. It has a very clear geopolitical dimension. It damages uh, not only the energy security, but the security of um, a large swath of European uh, Union member states and NATO member states uh, in the region east of Germany. So we continue to work um, with our allies in uh, Germany and also with uh, the European Union. I was recently in Brussels. We were coordinating on this. And our line continues to be that we want to see the European Union deal with this problem using its own perfectly serviceable tools. And the EU gas directive is the uh, most direct means by which to address this. Um, uh, the European Union uh, you, has perfectly serviceable mechanisms for dealing with things like this. We saw with South Stream, for example. And uh, there is a very large number of countries, I would argue probably a plurality of EU member states, uh, who do not want this project to move forward. On Western Balkans, um, it's been very much a focus for me Recently, I, I was in uh, Serbia, Kosovo, and Macedonia. Um, this is a region, um, where, uh, I think, uh, the West lost focus for some period of time. Uh, the, what, you know, Serbia, Kosovo, in uh, the process of normalization, we work very closely with the European Union, coordinating our objectives. We work very closely with Germany and France and the UK and Italy on a daily basis. At my level, at the level below me, level above me, this is a frequent topic of conversation. We recently, um, took a common uh, stance, uh, not only on Serbia-Kosovo, but uh, we're also working on Bosnia-Herzegovina, the name issue with Macedonia and Greece. Uh, uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, we have uh, some of our team right now dealing with this, and the United States continues to pr- uh, play a quiet role, uh, but uh, alongside the EU and Germany and others, encouraging a resolution of this impasse so that we can see Macedonia uh, become a NATO member state. All of these are areas that, on a day-to-day basis, we spend a lot of uh, uh, energy and time working on. Uh, we uh, devote a lot of resources to the problems of the Western Balkans. Uh, and uh, I think some of the approaches that we're taking now, these are uh, age old problems. Uh, I don't expect to see any of them completely solved
1: in the near term, but I think we're making important progress. So Are you, are you a betting guy on the naming of the Macedonia issue resolution? Do we, do we get a percentage? 60-40? I am absolutely 80, not 80, going 90. to ask that question. <laughs> Well, I, I would like to thank you for not only in coming and speaking today and laying out the administration's policy for America's next steps in Europe, but really for taking a grilling and answering what I think are really kind of the tough questions that are on most people's minds. So if you all please uh, join me in thanking the Secretary for his comments.